0: You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Good morning, you guys. It's good to be with you. It's good to see you today. Uh, Friends, over the last couple of years... I've spent a good amount of time uh, reading about the human brain because I'm a nerd and that's something that I enjoy doing. And uh, there's one researcher, one neuroscientist that's fascinated me recently. His name is Antonio Damasio. And Damasio has devoted much of his career to studying the way that we form our identity as humans, our sense of self, and then how we live out of that identity, how we live out of that sense of self. And most of us in our world tend to think that we form our identity based upon hard data or facts. We look at information, or we're educated on information, and then we come to a conclusion about who we are and who we're going to be in the world. But Damasio actually says that we come to our sense of identity from a radically different place. We don't come to it from reason or rationality. We come to it from images, images that we connect directly to our emotions. Our identities are primarily formed by powerful, striking images. And I think when we look around our world, we start to see this line up. Damasio's research makes sense. I mean, think about it. The perfect emoji changes everything, right? Why is it that we love sending images to one another? Well, they communicate something about us that no amount of explanation or words ever could. I know I'm not the only person in here who scours for just the perfect gift to send back to someone, right? We look for the right thing because it has the ability to express something that words never What's the main way that our, our culture right now tells stories that shape us and form us? What's the main medium? Instagram, images, right? A multi-billion dollar film industry exists in our culture. TV and film, they form us, they shape us in one way or another. And that's just as true in our spiritual lives. Images actually shape us. Consider, for instance, the cross, a central image for Christians. It's really simple. It's two lines. And yet within those two lines are some of the most formative messages, things that change our lives. The cross reminds us what love looks like. The cross reminds us the power of forgiveness. The cross gives us a different way of being in the world, one of service rather than power and authority over others. One little image, two simple lines do all of that for us and way, way more. I change my life. I live a certain way because of the power of the image of the cross. And the prophets, in the Old Testament, in our scriptures, intuitively knew what Damasio has revealed for us in scientific research today. See, the prophets were storytellers. They were image makers. They were poets and rebels, and they knew that the right image had the capacity to radically transform us. That speaking the right thing in the right way through powerful image making could actually shock us into a different way of being. And growing up in the church, I was never taught to read the prophets that way. The prophets were always kind of these strange texts for me. We would lift one or two verses out of context, and then we'd sell them in Hobby Lobby and then hang them up in our homes. That was the primary way that I was taught to read the prophets. But there's so much more to them than that. Because the images that they give us are powerful. They're striking. They're aggressive and jarring at times. And that means they're not meant to go down easy for us. They're not meant to be easily digestible. They're meant to be chewed on, to be meditated upon. They're meant to get into our muscles and our bones and shape us in some way. We're in the midst of a teaching series here at Midtown called When Things Fall Apart. We're looking at the the prophet Jeremiah and his life and writings in our scriptures. He was a prophet to the nation of Judah, and he lived during a time when everything around him was falling apart. Politicians had become corrupted. The religious institution was obsessed with the wrong things at the wrong times and the wrong ways, and world superpowers were clashing again and again and again. And Jeremiah watched all of this happen, and he used powerful images to communicate to people how they are to live in a world that seems like it's falling apart. And today, we're going to explore two powerful images that he gives us, images that shake us awake, that energize us to a deeper understanding of God, of ourselves, and of the world around us. So friends, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it with me. we're going to be reading from Jeremiah chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Jeremiah is near the end of the Old Testament, if you're flipping there. Look for the big number 3 after you get there, and then the little number 6. We'll read from verse 6 all the way through verse 18. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we have a stack of them on the table. Grab one on your way out. It's yours for free. We want to make sure that you have a Bible that you can read from in your own time and with us on a Sunday morning. Uh, We'll have the words behind me on the screen if you'd like to follow along there as well. this is Jeremiah chapter 3, starting in verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and played the whore there. And I thought, after she's done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her false sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce, yet her false sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom so lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her false sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but only in pretense, says the Lord. Then the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself less guilty than false Judah. Go, proclaim these words towards the north and say, return, faithless Israel, says the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you've rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among strangers under every green tree and have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O faithless children, says the Lord, for I'm your master. I will take you. One from a city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you've multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, they shall no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed, nor shall any another one be made. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather to it to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no longer stubbornly follow their own evil will. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your ancestors for a heritage. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Where have we cheated on God? Where have we cheated on God? Not a question we ask ourselves very often. It's a little aggressive, a little extreme. It's a striking image, right? And yet that's precisely the one that Jeremiah gives to the nations of Israel and Judah in our text today. This is the ultimate indictment on our human nature, on this brokenness that seeks death and destruction, seeks the wrong way and leaves the source of life in God. And this image of whore, that's not meant to be an image that we stomach easily. It's meant to jar us away. And it actually makes good sense of the scriptural story. See, uh, originally, Israel and Judah, they were one nation. They uh, were unified together, and they were called into a covenant by God. Covenant is a fancy word for a committed partnership. And covenants were actually common in the ancient Near East. And so God is using a common structural uh, system that existed in that day in order to communicate his commitment to these people, his commitment to bringing life and flourishing. And so this covenant, said that if the people were to make God the top priority in their lives and prioritize the things that God prioritizes, embodying God's character of the world, then life and flourishing would come to them and to all people around them. Then the world would be redeemed and restored. God is committed to redeeming and restoring the world, and he's inviting this nation to join him in that work. And we actually have a ton of details about this partnership in our Bible. So you can actually go and read about the covenant. There's lots of laws that can be confusing to us, but for the people of Israel, these were sort of like marriage vows, committed partnerships, ways that they could come alongside God and embody his character so that all things can flourish. And similar to the marriage vows that we give one another when we get married, they're not just meant to be behavior modifications. They're actually ways of changing who we are, structuring our lives in such a way that the end game is life for all things and all people. And so these people committed to loving God and loving their neighbors in this covenant, in this agreement. They committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized. They committed to avoiding the unhealthy obsessions of sex and power and wealth of the world around them. They committed to healthy rhythms in their life. And it goes on and on and on. All of those commitments so that all things and all people could flourish. But as the story continues, the nation deserts those commitments. They desert their loving and committed spouse in God, and things keep getting worse and worse and worse. Eventually, this one nation splits into two, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And because of that, well, Israel ends up continuing in the path and they get destroyed. They get conquered by an ancient empire called Assyria. Because they left the source of life, left the commitment to life and started to seek the wrong things, they brought destruction upon themselves. And Judah, the southern nation, watched it all happen. They saw it, and they didn't change their behavior. They saw the failed example of Israel to the north of them, and they failed to change their behaviors. They failed to return to God. And in both cases, in Israel and in Judah, each nation chooses to prioritize and embody the character of other gods, gods of their culture and their world. We get the names of these gods all over our scriptures. Names like Asherah, Molech, Baal. And they made idols of these gods. We actually learn about them. Sometimes in your scriptures, they call them Asherah Poles. But these are so common in the ancient world, so common in Israel and Judah, that archaeologists have actually speculated that they might have been present in every home at the time. Every home had a little idol. Every home had a little god that they worshipped over and against Yahweh, over and against the god that could bring life and flourishing. They cheated on God by prioritizing the things that these other gods represented. They prioritized political power and dominance over humility and gentleness. They prioritized selfish gain rather than generosity in their lives. They prioritized ugly religious practices like child sacrifice. And these little gods are referenced here. You might have noticed that they committed adultery with stone and tree. It's kind of a weird phrase. That's what those idols were made of. Stone and tree. They've taken this commitment to God, this otherworldly transformative commitment, and they've traded it in for material gain, material things. And slowly, day after day, both Israel and Judah become the things that they prioritized. And it leads them not to flourishing, but to destruction. And that's actually how adultery works. That's why this is such a fitting image that Jeremiah gives us. See, no one wakes up one morning randomly with someone not their spouse and is surprised at what has happened, right? You don't wake up and, who are you, right? There are a lot of things that lead up to that moment, a lot of little decisions. Adultery is the result of a long, repeated distancing of oneself from their spouse. And it was the slow and steady giving of themselves over to the priorities of the world around them that led Israel and Judah to destruction. And that's a crucial point for us to remember, friends. None of us in here are the result of one moment. None of us in here uh, can sum ourselves up in one moment, but instead are a collection of moments. Little bits, little responses that lead up and build up and culminate to make us who we are. Every day, every decision, we're becoming more of who we're going to be. And so that means... We'd better do a good job of evaluating what we prioritize in even the smallest of things in our lives. Because the smallest of things make us who we are. The way we treat others in small interactions today exposes what we prioritize and shapes us into who we're going to be. The way we respond to our children today reveals what we prioritize and shapes us into who we're going to be. The way we view our money or our career our success or our failure, those things exposed to us what we prioritize, and shape us into who we're going to be. And it can be easy for us to look at uh, Israel and Judah and their decisions and think, well, I mean, they were quite primitive people, right? And we're not sitting here with stones and wood carving our own gods. We've evolved a little bit, and we're a little bit more sensible today, right? Right? Friends, I think we still have plenty of carved gods in our world. Plenty of carved gods. Our homes are filled with them. The world is constantly slinging them our way. When was the last time you harbored resentment instead of forgiving someone who had harmed you? It might be that you're carving a god out of pride. When was the last time you stayed up all night wishing for the life that someone else has? You might be carving the god of covetousness. When was the last time you talked about politics, like it was the most important thing in the world? You might be carving the God of power. When was the last time you refused to be generous, refused to give your money or your life away? You might be carving the God of comfort and security. And remember, Jeremiah is primarily calling out the folks in his day who were the most religious. So lest we think that, well, we're in church, so we're, like, we're doing a good job here. He's calling out the people who showed up to their church, which means if we're in this room, we should be really, really aware of how this affects us, what he's saying to us. Have we in the church carved a God out of consumerism, shopping for churches or creating products that make everyone feel good but don't really actually speak to the needs of our world? Have we carved a God out of power, seeking political gain and aligning ourselves with a political ideology at the cost of neglecting Jesus? Have we carved gods out of pride, platforming impressive people who look really put together and overlooking the poor and the needy and the broken? America and the church are full of gods, friends. We may not name them Asherah or Molech or Baal, but they're here. And The way we respond to the offers of these gods is what shapes us into the people that we're going to become. The little ways, the little things that we do in our lives shape us. And if you want to test what gods might exist in your life right now, there's a simple question you can ask yourself. What thing in my life is an absolute requirement for my happiness or self-worth? What thing in my life right now is an absolute requirement for happiness or self-worth? because the way you answer that question will expose to you what you're prioritizing, will expose to you what you're being shaped by. And so this image of adultery that Jeremiah gives reveals the indictment of God upon sin and brokenness, upon idolatry, upon putting the wrong things as the priority in our lives. But there's a second thing we learn from this image of adultery. We don't just learn that God has an indictment upon sin, we also learn that God has infinite love in response to sin. Notice, how does God respond to the adultery of the people? By affirming his character as merciful. That's the immediate response he has. He indicts the sin and brokenness that they've gone and pursued, and then he says, you're welcome back, because I'm merciful. And that is a wild claim, because remember the context. This nation has been cheating on God for centuries, over and over and over. Earlier in chapter 3, we didn't read it together, but it has some really explicit words to say. There's a rhetorical question that gets asked, and I like how the message translation, Eugene Peterson's translation brings it out. In the early part of chapter 3, he asks the rhetorical question, where have you not had sex? Where have you not had sex with other gods? Where have you not worshipped other things? Look around you at all of the hills. You've gone and chased the wrong things over and over and over. So remember that that's the context here. And even in the midst of this egregious cheating, this egregious adultery, God says, I'm merciful. You're welcome back. Friends, that's central to understanding any of this story. God's words against sin are strong, and we can't overlook them. But his words about his mercy are stronger. God doesn't take joy in our brokenness. God is not sitting waiting to smite us. Our choices break God's heart all the time because they lead to the destruction of the life that we were made for. But God longs to see us restored. He doesn't long to see us suffer. Mercy is the driving force behind God's action in the world, the driving force behind this whole story. And that sort of mercy is greater even than the most egregious of sins that any of us could commit. There's a great quote from an 8th century monk named Isaac of Nineveh. He says it this way, As a handful of sand is thrown into the ocean, so are the sins of all flesh compared with the mind of God. As a, ha- <coughs> Excuse me. as a handful of sand is thrown into the ocean, so are the sins of all flesh as compared with the mind of God. Friends, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever you've placed your value in, whatever gods you've carved for yourself, This is a necessary truth that you need to hear. God forgives you. God is merciful. And I know that's really hard for us to believe sometimes. Because we all walk into this room with certain things that we think stand between us and God. Certain things that we've done, certain priorities, certain states of mind, maybe a sense of self-pity. Those things stand between us and God. And so we hear this message of mercy and we think, well, Yeah, but, like, if you really knew what I was carrying into this place. Yeah, but if you really knew that this was actually the 1,343rd time I've gone back to this thing. Then, then the mercy doesn't hold up any longer. As it turns out, our hearts have less capacity for mercy than God's. And that's especially true for ourselves. You guys, God knows it all. He knows it all. And he's making it unequivocally clear here. He forgives And with open arms, he welcomes us back home. He ensures that there is nothing that can stand in the way of us and true, lasting life and flourishing. And in case we still find that really difficult to process, really difficult to integrate into our lives, he gave us a clear image of himself and his character in the person of Jesus. Jesus came to earth, and in John chapter 6, Jesus says that anyone, anyone, who returns to me, regardless of what they've done, I will not cast out. No matter what, I will not cast them out. Jesus is the ultimate image, the ultimate picture of who God is and God's character to us. And he says, if you return to me, I will never cast you out. God knows that we're going to find this hard to believe, and that's why he sent himself here, made himself human so that we would know and experience his mercy he ensures that none of our excuses can stand between us and him. There's a great uh, poet named John Bunyan. Some of you may have been forced to read some things by him at some point in your life uh, in English classes. Uh, He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with The Pilgrim's Progress. But he was also a great poet. And he has a powerful poem that makes sense of Jesus' words in John chapter 6. I wanted to read this poem to you guys. (coughs) But I am a great sinner, Say you, I will never cast out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner, say you, I will never cast out, says Christ. But I'm a hard hearted sinner, say you, I will never cast out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, say you, I will never cast out, says Christ. But I've served Satan all my days, say you, I will never cast out, says Christ. But I've sinned against light, Say you, I will never cast out, says Christ. But I've sinned against mercy, say you, I will never cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you, I will never cast out, says Christ. Friends, the image of adultery that Jeremiah highlights here doesn't just tell us about the indictment of God upon our brokenness. It also tells us about the infinite love, the infinite mercy that awaits us whenever we return to God in the midst our brokenness. And then, Jeremiah moves on to a new image. He moves past the adultery image and he gives us the image of God as a parent and us as his children, his beloved children. And it's in that image that we learn the final thing about God's character in this passage. We learn God's invitation to us. As a loving father who invites his children back, God extends an invitation to Israel and Judah. Return to me. Come back home. Repent, acknowledge your guilt, and walk with me again because life is waiting for you. True, lasting, full life is waiting for you. Friends, our own brokenness can never keep us from God. His mercy is too big for that. Nothing you've ever done can stand in the way, which means that the only thing that can keep us from full life with God well, is a lack of acknowledgement that we need it. The only people who aren't restored to God are the ones who won't let him restore them. And the only qualification to receive grace and forgiveness from God is the acknowledgement that we are unqualified for it. The only qualification to receive love and grace, fullness of life from God, is the acknowledgement that we're not qualified. For Israel and for Judah, things fell apart in their lives as a result of their cheating ways as often happens in adultery. But it was precisely when things fell apart that God sent Jeremiah to remind them to return home. And it's precisely when things fall apart in our lives that God is reaching out, that God is pleading with us. As a parent pleads for his children to come home. God wants every person here to know the same thing. Every person outside this room to know the same thing. You are a beloved child, a son and daughter of the Most High God. You don't need to be afraid. You're loved, and you can come back home. Maria and her daughter, Cristina, lived in a poor neighborhood on the outskirts of a Brazilian village. Maria's husband had died when Cristina was an infant, and she never remarried. Times were tough, but at last, Cristina was old enough to get a job to help out. Cristina spoke of going to the city. She dreamed of trading her dusty neighborhood for exciting avenues in the city life. But just the thought of that horrified her mother because she knew exactly what Christina would have to do for a living when she got there. That's why her heart broke. And that's why she couldn't believe it when she awoke one morning and her daughter's bed was empty. She had gone. Knowing where her daughter was headed, she quickly threw on some clothes, stuffed a bunch of clothes in a bag, gathered all her money, and ran out of the house. And on her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore. She got one last thing. Photos. She sat in the photograph booth, closed the curtain, and spent all the time she could on making photos of herself. With a purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. And Maria knew that Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. And when pride meets hunger, a human being will do things that were previously unimaginable. Knowing this, Maria began her search. Bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with a reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. She went to them all, And at each place, Maria left her photo. Taped to a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin bar, fastened to a corner telephone booth. And on the back of each photo, she wrote a note. And then she ran out of money and ran out of pictures, and she went back home. A few weeks later, young Christina descended the hotel stairs where she was meeting with one of her clients. And her young face was exhausted. Her dreams had become a nightmare. But as she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mom. Christina's eyes burned, her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. And written on the back were these words. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Please, come back home. Theologian and author Max Lucado tells this story in a book called No Wonder They Call Him Savior. And he's pulling from the same image that Jeremiah uses for us here. The image of God is a loving and committed parent, who puts pictures of himself all around our lives so that we would return home. And after using these two images, adultery and God's image of his perfect parenthood, there's one final image in this passage that Jeremiah hints at in verses 15 through 18. He doesn't give it explicitly, but he hints at it. He uses a phrase, in those days, he's looking forward to the future. And he goes on to describe this amazing picture of unity where all people from all nations gather together in united life and love for God, for one another. He says that God will send shepherds to care for his people, and that all of the pomp and circumstance of religion will disappear because we're so connected with God that we don't need it. The Ark of the Covenant, you won't even care about that anymore. This holy object won't matter because you're in the presence of God. You'll know, God, there will be nothing between you and God. This is the same sort of phrasing and picture that many of the other prophets give us as well when they look forward to the day when God will bring all life to us. Painting a picture here of God's redemptive and restorative work. And what we learn in this amazing library of texts is that this image that Jeremiah has pointing to, is pointing to has arrived. It's arrived in the cross of Jesus Christ. The final image. See, the cross is God's ultimate indictment of sin. All of our brokenness was taken on on the cross and defeated there. The cross is also God's picture of intimate love, that God will go to any length to bring his children back. And the cross is God's invitation to each and every one of us, that God has his arms extended outward, that he's inviting us back in for a warm embrace, that he's waiting to give us life and flourishing now and into eternity. And so the question for us today is the same as it was for Judah, same as it was for Israel then. Are we willing to come back home? Are we willing to trust that this is who God is? Are we willing to end all of our affairs with all the little gods that we've carved in our lives? Are we willing to return for the first time or for the thousandth time, friends? God is beckoning each and every one of us. We don't have to be defined by the gods out there, by our cheating and the destruction that it's brought to us. True life and true flourishing are waiting. The ball is in our court. So what's God calling you back home from today? What is God leading you back from? Where are the pictures that God has put in your life, beckoning you? From where do you need to return to our Lord? Let's pray.